You can all be seated and check out this video. morning, church family. Thank you for coming out on a blustery winter day. It is the perfect day to remember that spring is not far away. We are glad you're here. I want to give a shout out to our other campuses and the leaders of those campuses this morning. We have Chuck coming to us from Cincy campus. Danny is leading our Bainbridge campus. Joe is leading our Front Street campus. Ryan is leading our online campus. And, and Ron is leading our Green Campus here. So can we just thank all of our leaders this morning? It is such an honor to serve on a team like we have here. And here's what scripture says about uh, leadership of a church. It says this in Hebrews 13. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. So thank you for letting us serve with joy and not sorrow. Uh, I have many friends who are in ministry, and it is not a common situation to be able to lead a church and do it with joy. So thank you for making this fun. It should be that way. Amen? Um, and I do want you to know we take it very seriously, and that's why we come up with a preaching calendar to address what we think are the needs of our community and our people. And so last year, as we were praying about the shift that's happening in our country, going from a Christianized country to a post-Christian country, you feel this, as we're now in a post-Christian country, we think it's important to know what the people around us believe. And so we just decided last year we're going to take six weeks uh, in, over the winter, this, this winter, and we're going, to, we're going to study what six other faiths, six other world religions teach. Now, there are many more. Satan's clever. He's thrown thousands of options. But these are the six major ones. We have studied two main religions so far. We are halfway through today. We've studied a religion that's 1,500 years old. We've studied a religion that's 2,500 years old. Today, we're going to study one that's way older. So I'm going to give you some clues and just see if you can guess it, okay? Here are some clues to this world religion for today. It is the third largest religion in the world. It has over one billion followers, billion with a B. It has been around for so long that those who follow it claim it is an eternal religion. There is no founder, no known founder to this religion. They, uh, those who believe in this faith either claim to believe in one God 
in no gods or in up to 300 million gods. I'm not making this up. They believe there are many paths to the divine, whatever, whoever the divine is. And they think it will take them many, many lifetimes to achieve that destination to their divine. They, they believe that life is a loop, an endless series of birth, life, death, rebirth cycles. They're a very tolerant, they're known as the most tolerant religion because they really don't have a single set of beliefs. Let me give you a clue that might tip it off for you. Most of their adherents live in India, although there are now millions of followers of this faith here in America. Any guesses? Oh, man, you're so good at this. You're right. It would be Hinduism. And before we dive into this very large, third largest, very old and very confusing faith, I got to tell you a story, a true story. So there was a mom who gave birth one day to twins, and her cute little boy she named Tommy. And as a young man, Tommy took an unusual career detour. He didn't follow in his father's footsteps and take up the family business. He actually accepted a call to become an adult student. Every parent's dream. So the, the deal with Tommy is he had actually been hand-selected by, by a teacher into a three-year school. It was a school that had no accreditation and so no ability to grant a diploma at the end. But his new teacher was someone that he had just, he, he was unlike anyone this, this Tommy had ever met. And Tommy was a guy who really struggled with a lot of pessimism. He was what he would call a realist, what those around him would call a pessimist. And uh, he had a lot of... Um, struggles internally, but he really admired his new teacher, and he became a devoted and very loyal student. And then things got kind of strange. Toward the end of the three-year program, his teacher started talking a lot about death, and next thing he knows, his teacher's dead. So he had to decide what to do with his future, and, and weeks later, he's hanging out with some of his fellow students, and one by one, they began sharing that recently they've seen their teacher alive again. And obviously, he doesn't buy it. Um, in fact, he was known, his nickname was Doubter. And so he just said, look, guys, I'm not going to believe that until I, if, if I can see and touch it with my own hands. I, obviously, our teacher's dead. And eight days later, he's with his fellow students in a room, locked room, and next thing he knows, in front of him, standing there, is his teacher alive. And the teacher looks at him and says, Tom, go ahead and touch me and believe. And it changed his life. In that moment, he knew, he knew my teacher is not an ordinary man. And so he devoted the rest of his life to sharing about his teacher with a group of people far, far away who had never before heard of his teacher. The name of Tommy's teacher, does anyone know? Jesus. The group of people that Tommy devoted the rest of his life to go reach, anyone know? Hindus. Hindus which is kind of fascinating. Tommy loved the Hindu people. And by then, it was already an old religion, over 2,000 years old. And he devoted the rest of his life to sharing about his teacher with them. There's more to that true story, and I'll share a little bit more in a bit. But let me first give you a little overview of Hinduism. Because like me, you may not know a whole lot. Um, in America, our 
perspective on Hinduism is fairly limited for many reasons. Uh, we, we haven't had a lot of Hindu folks in our country until lately. It's a growing group of people. Many Hindus in America have earned a reputation as being a highly skilled community. They, they tend to go for a lot of higher education. They tend to get jobs in the high-tech sector. And so more and more, you're probably rubbing shoulders with people who are of a Hindu faith, if you're in a high-tech sector or, or perhaps in a medical field. It's, it's a religion, even though they live among us, it's a religion that's increasingly difficult for people like us to grasp. Uh, and, and, and it's because it's so complicated. I'm going to quote Stephen Knapp, who says this about Hinduism. Hinduism is not organized in the way we see most religions in the world. It really isn't. There's not clean-cut boxes. It does not have a particular founder, savior, book, leader, or holy place. It does not have a specific day of the week to observe or a call to prayer or a certain ritual that everyone must observe. It's decentralized and localized in a way in which it allows anyone to observe the basic principles that are best for him or her. So today, as, as we go through this religion, I'm going to do my best to summarize something that's really hard to summarize. Um, I, I, as a teacher, love to simplify complex topics, so I hope I'm not oversimplifying here. I hope I'm, I'm being fair to Hindus and their faith in the way I describe it, and I'm going to do it by using only four key words, because I think there's four key words with this faith that describes it perfectly, and then just because I'm going to throw in a bonus keyword for free. And, and I don't claim to be a Hindu expert. I am not at all. I'm a student like you. I, I just have spent some time researching it. And I hope I'm, I'm fair to them in how I explain this. And the goal for us is that we would be educated about what more and more people around us believe, that we would be inspired and pretty open to share our faith with those of other faith. Often, people don't know how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think hearing the why behind why people follow a certain belief goes a long way towards understanding more of their needs and their struggles and being able to meet them at that human level of connection. So the first key word, here we go. The first key word is probably the one you scratched your head about a moment ago, their view of the divine. It's a big deal in Hinduism to follow a path, a path to the divine. And so I mentioned here that there's over 300 million gods in Hinduism. I took the time last few weeks to count them, and I'll share their names now. <laughs> some Hindus believe, this is crazy, even though there's over 300 million gods, some Hindus believe in one god, Brahman, and others believe in no gods. And I know that's confusing. So how's that possible? Well, there's three beliefs about the divine in Hinduism, three very different beliefs. Some believe that there's a god, Brahman, kind of the, the creator god, and all other gods are just manifestations of him. Other Hindus believe there are no gods, and other Hindus believe that there, that there are many gods, up to 300 million. So that's the three very div diverse views of the divine. One Hindu priest was kind of asked about this. Like, there's so many gods in Hinduism. How do you choose which god to worship? And a Hindu priest said, well, in his temple, everyone prefers to worship Lakshmi, 
Okay, you say, well, why do they want to worship Lakshmi? And he said, because most of the people who come to my temple would like more money. So it's natural to worship her because she has cascades of gold coins rushing from her hands. And, and this is kind of the beauty of a pantheon. There's a God for everything you need. If you're on a journey and you want direction, you would cry out to Ganesha, the God of venture and journey. Do you need money? We'll try Lakshmi who has gold coins rushing from her. You can kind of pick and choose the God that you want in the moment that you're in. There's a lot of diversity in the pantheon of the Hindu faith. And remember, their goal is to find a path, a personalized path to the divine, whatever that looks like for you. Okay, that's the first key word. Second key word is this, cycle. And I use that word cycle to describe their view of life. See, they view us kind of like hermit crabs. We carry with us a body just for this life, but we're going to shed it and get a different one the next life. And as we go through this cycle of birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth, we're constantly, what's the name for that? Does anyone know? Reincarnation. We're constantly reincarnating into something different. And you may come back, if you didn't do that good in this life, you may come back as an animal in the next. Heaven forbid you come back as a cat, right? Or a guinea pig, right? Or an ant. Now, I don't mean to make light of it, though. They genuinely believe this, that every life, even inanimate objects that have life, like plants, have a soul. And so you may not even come back as an animal. You may be lucky to come back as an animal. You may come back as a plant in the next life. In previous lives, you may have been a plant. You may have been an animal. And so it's, it's a journey of a soul. And the divine is within you. This is, this is true of a few religions, and it's true of Hinduism. The divine is within you. You're not born a sinner. The, the challenge for humans is our ignorance. So you want to overcome your ignorance with education and knowledge as you keep cycling through this thing called birth, life, redeath cycle, which they call, they call sumsara. Okay? After hundreds and thousands of lifetimes, here's their hope of getting out of this cycle, when all of your karmas have been fully resolved, you can shed your ego and get final release. That's moksha. And then you reach a place called nirvana. You heard this? Nirvana, and nirvana is where you become one with God. Now, last week with Buddhism, nirvana is something they teach, but it's where you cease to exist. You're snuffed out. And that's their hope. For Hinduism, nirvana is this oneness. You finally cycle through enough, you've advanced enough in these cycles to get to the divine and become one with him. So, to be united with the divine or with Brahman, many believe in Brahman, the chief god, you need to be reincarnated into a better position. So each lifetime, and this right now, your lifetime, you're trying to pocket some goodwill that you can take with you in the next lifetime, and you don't have to start on start. You can start a few stages ahead. And so you always want to increase good choices in this lifetime, decrease bad choices to somehow get ahead in the next lifetime. And that's this idea of karma, limiting bad choices, limiting bad thoughts, increasing good choices, increasing good thoughts. And it's a guess. You really don't know until you wake up in the next lifetime what you're going to be and if you've gone forward or backwards. It's a guessing game. In fact, most Hindus don't have any hope that in the next lifetime they'll achieve nirvana. So they've simply 
kind of been okay with this concept. We just hope the next lifetime will be a little further ahead. They think it'll take hundreds, thousands of lifetimes to get to nirvana. Okay, so that's the cycle that I think describes them very well. They have this path to the divine, many paths. You're in a cycle of life. And the third key word is rituals. And, and this is harder to nail down because there's so much diversity, as I mentioned, in Hinduism. But your duty, the karma, to create good karma, you want to do good things. And by doing good things, you're creating a balance in this life. And that's called dharma. That's the secret to happiness, is creating a balance in life. And, and one of the rituals you do to have a peaceful, good life is you need to make sure that you do rituals like feeding the gods. And the reason you have to feed the gods of Hinduism is because they can't feed themselves. Could you imagine having a god who can't even feed himself? Their gods can't, and so that's part of the ritual of their religion. Uh, there's many other acts that they do, prayer and meditation and acts of selflessness. They do these things to honor their gods. Now, there was a, a guy who grew up Hindu, uh, Madhusmi Thiramali, who wrote a book on Hinduism, and he said this. this. This book's called Sharing Your Faith with a Hindu. He was one, so he would know how. He said, I was brought up in a, hin a Hindu in a small town in southern India. I believed in and worshipped idols. And I sought the favors of gods, don't miss that, the favors of gods and spirits through animal sacrifices, sorcery, divination, and witchcraft. Okay, so, so there's a lot of syncretism within Hinduism. They really integrate a lot of different spiritual practices inside of their religion. So they have idols, they have relics, they have pictures, they have divine objects. And when they sacrifice, whether it's through good deeds or words or animal sacrifices, they're doing it to earn favor with a god, a particular god or spirit, hoping that that god or spirit will give them what they want. It's an exchange. I'll do this for you. You do this for me. It's a transactional thing with their gods. And it's almost this idea of you're bribing the powers. You're bribing the powers to give you what you want. Derek Cooper, who wrote the book that we've recommended for this series, Christianity and World Religions, he says this. He says, Hindus have no prescribed days or times for worship. Most have their own personal shrines at home. So a Hindu family, if, if you get to meet them, don't be put off. They're going to have some sort of little shrine in their house. And they don't attend a temple on a regular basis. They will feed, clothe, and give worship to these household gods, small statues, on a daily basis. It's only for special occasions like festivals that a Hindu needs to use the priest or the temple. The highlight of a temple service is when a person is seen by the God he or she is devoted to in order to receive the transaction of blessing. Interesting. That's the highlight when they go to temple in a festival, is when your God that you're praying to or giving sacrifices to sees you. It's interesting that the Christian God is known as the God who sees. Okay, so some other rituals that a Hindu will practice that you're probably very familiar with is this idea of a dot on the forehead of some of the women. That's called a bindi. Some women wear it to convey that they're married. Others wear it literally just as a cosmetic beauty mark. Um, and others have different reasons. Again, there's a lot of diversity, but a lot of Hindu ladies will wear a bindi. Um, they also have a system that's very unfamiliar to us, but you've heard of it. It's the caste system. And the caste system is the idea that you're born into a, a construct based on your family background. 
So you're born at a certain cast. You never change cast. You never get out of the cast you're in. You stay there for the rest of your life. And that has been a part of Hinduism for centuries. You might have heard on the news this week, uh, Seattle became the first U.S. city to ban caste discrimination. Did you hear that? They became the first U.S. city. And the reason for that is 2% of adults in Seattle are now Hindus. And so in, in Seattle, they're saying, we're not going to allow this practice of a person being in a certain caste and being discriminated against because of their caste. Another part of Hinduism that you may not know comes from Hinduism, but it's increasingly popular in America, is something called yoga. Um, they call it yokes. Some of them call it yoga. But it's this kind of complicated and convoluted path of uniting your soul with the divine. So it's, it's more than just making a physical workout spiritual. It, it's kind of tapping into magical powers that are obtained through, through this heavy-duty form of concentration. So just know that yoga has its roots in Hinduism and this desire to somehow concentrate and focus and be one with the divine. That's the roots of, of, of uh, yoga. So in your small group this week, that's one of the discussion questions, and it's a fascinating one to talk through a little bit of yoga. Now, there's this other concept or ritual in Hinduism that I don't want us to miss that's, that's unique, and it's called a himsma. And it's the ritual or concept in Hinduism of non-injury. Hindus tend to be people that don't want to harm anything. They don't want to do self-harm. They don't want to harm animals or plants because the divine is in all those things. And it's why there's the stereotype of a Hindu person who is a vegetarian, and they won't eat meat. Now, you need to know stereotype in Hinduism is not really a thing because there's so much diversity, so there's actually a ton of Hindus that are meat eaters. Um, but that is a stereotype because of this concept of non-injury. Those are some of the key rituals. All right, there's one more key word, and we'll try to sort this all out. And it's this key word, tolerance. Tolerance. And this is what's making it more of a popular religion in America is because this is a key word in American thought right now. In a postmodern culture, the most uh, honored things are those things that are tolerant. The most dishonored things are those that are dogmatic. And Hinduism is not dogmatic at all. It's very tolerant. It's very accommodating. And, and this is for Hindus, this is a point of pride for them. They're very welcoming and accepting and open to other faiths. Here's what's interesting. Two very dogmatic faiths are Islam, that we learned about week one, and Christianity. And both of them have what's called closed canons. So we have holy books that are actually fair, fairly small compared to Buddhism. Buddhism has what's called an open canon, where their, their holy writings are still being written, and there's many, and there's still being ongoing people who are writing these sacred texts. And there's a lot of overlap in Hinduism with the breakaway religion of Buddhism. Now, it is one of the most diverse religions in the world. Let me read for you what Cooper says, and we'll talk about this. He says, to an outsider, one can get the impression that anything goes with Hinduism. It's not exactly true, but the religion does have different scriptures, different gods, different worship practices, different postures towards one's purpose or goal in life, and different ways to pursue whatever goal of life one wants to observe. Hinduism... Don't miss this. Hinduism is less about a set of stringent doctrines and timeless beliefs and more about what one makes of it. Okay? 
So it's let, that's why it's hard to explain. It's not as much about this set of beliefs. It's about what you make of them on your path to the divine. And so a Hindu will just believe that all genuine paths to God are, are just facets of his light. It's just God giving divine wisdom to achieve nirvana. Now, as I do my absolute best, and I'm telling you, I'm trying to do my best to explain this thing of Hinduism. You may be scratching your head and saying, this makes no sense. I'm glad we agree. And, and here's why. I, again, I'm not saying that to belittle Hindus. I'm just saying, here's why we feel this way. Hinduism is an Eastern religion. And most, or if not all of us, grew up in a Western civilization. And Western civilization is marked by an embrace of Judeo-Christian values, which is a love of logic and reason and order and consistency. That is not part of an Eastern mindset. In an Eastern mindset, you don't have to have logic. You can can be okay with paradox. You can be okay with diversity. You can be okay with tension. You can be okay with mystery. Uh, A former Hindu who wrote this book I mentioned, here's what he says. The Hindu faith continues to be puzzling. It includes theological positions that are contradictory to one another and yet coexist under the same umbrella. Millions of Hindus do not even know for certain what Hinduism is all about. Even in their confusion, Hindus devotedly and almost unfailingly follow rituals and disciplines handed down to them through oral traditions for thousands of years. Now, one of the reasons that Hinduism is attracting more followers in America today is exactly because of this idea that it's very tolerant and very open to finding your path to the divine. And there are more and more people in American culture who are saying, we are spiritually bankrupt. Does anyone else agree with that statement? I mean, they're feeling it, though. We're spiritually bankrupt, and we're tired of consumerism, we're tired of materialism, and we just want a non-dogmatic approach to God. And so Hinduism is a really nice option because there's... Millions of options within Hinduism under that umbrella. Now, one final key word that I want to throw out there that doesn't typify Hindus, but I believe is what every Hindu is actually searching for. And that one key word is Jesus. And and I say that for a reason, and then there's a problem here. The reason is, as they search for a path to the divine, I believe that God has sent us that path, and his name was Jesus. But a Hindu will gladly worship and follow Jesus without neglecting their Hinduism. Let me say, let me quote from Cooper's book. He says, because of the great tolerance and syncretism of Hinduism, it's not uncommon for Christians to share their faith in Jesus with Hindus and for Hindus to cheerfully add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. One Hindu said this, but I do worship Jesus. I have a statue of Jesus at my home that I pray to every day. So Hindus may gladly accept Jesus as one of their gods, not as the god, just one of them. They gladly add Jesus to their list. I mean, you have 300 million. What's one more? And so that's the interesting Part of Hinduism is they'll gladly add Jesus. The problem is Jesus doesn't want to be, is not willing to be added to anyone's list of gods. 
And that's kind of the tension and the conflict with Hinduism. And Tommy, the young man I told you about, the student of Jesus, was one day in a discussion with Jesus about this idea of achieving the divine and a path to God. And in that fascinating discussion, he was talking about, and Jesus was talking about with him, the path to divinity, which I think is the pursuit of every Hindu. And honestly, it's the pursuit, I think, of every human being looking to reach God. And that conversation is so fascinating. I'd like you to do me a favor and turn to it. It's in John 14 in your copy of the scriptures. John 14. This is really fascinating, especially as it relates to our topic today. Uh, Page 867 in your chair Bible. If you're down at Regal at our Front Street campus, there's a white bag near you. There's a chair Bible in there. You can grab it, open it, and use it. Um, At any of our campuses, if you'd like that Bible, take it. It's our gift to you. It's our investment in your faith journey. John chapter 14. Here's this fascinating discussion. Jesus says to Thomas and some of his students, he says this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so you will always be with me where I am going. And you know the way to where I am going. Interesting phrasing that Jesus used. You know the way to where I'm going, to my father. You know the path to the divine is what Jesus is saying. And then Someone speaks up and says this in verse 5. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? And that's what I love about Thomas. He is so blunt and honest. And all the other students are like, what is Jesus talking about? I don't know. And Thomas is like, I have a question. Where on earth are you going? We have no idea where you're going. How can we follow you and get there to God if we don't know where you're going? Now, give him a break. This was before the days of GPS. They didn't even have paper maps. So he's like, if you're going somewhere, you can't just give us the coordinates. You can't just give us the, the directions to punch into Google. We don't know how to get there. You've got you to be a little more clear, Jesus. We don't know what the way is. And Jesus then drops something that changes Tommy's life. He says this in verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way. Okay, a little bit unexpected there. Okay, you know, Jesus like, you want directions? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, get out, you know, get out your pencil. Okay, we're ready. What, what street do we turn at? What's the landmark we look for? I am the way. Huh? Jesus says, I am the way. And notice the article that he puts before way. Hinduism, there are how many ways? Many. Many, so find your way. Jesus says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, remember the context that Jesus says this this statement. Jesus says this in the context that a few thousand miles away are a group of Hindus growing who have been following an ancient faith for thousands of years since before the time of Abraham that believes in 
achieving good karma, reaching nirvana and a path to God. Jesus knows all about Hindus. And in that context, he tells Tom, who's going to end up devoting the rest of his life to Hindus, there is a path to the divine, and I'm it. Tom, there is no other way. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And I just wonder, this isn't the only time Jesus said this. He didn't want his guys to miss it. He said it again another time in Mark 16. And he told them, go into all the world. Who do you think was on Jesus' mind when he says this? Certainly Hindus were partly on his mind. And preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Does this sound tolerant? It sounds very exclusive. Jesus is like, this is good news though. There is a fire escape, right? If I told you a fire is breaking out right now, you can go out any door you want, but I know that one door leads to a closet. Am I being gracious and kind to you? I'm not. So I want to help you get out the doors that take you outside, not into a closet. And Jesus says, I am the fire escape. I am the only way out of this life to heaven. There's no other way. It looks like there's many ways. There's many doors. There's many paths. But I am the only way that gets you to God. And he says this to Thomas. And then Philip speaks up, verse 8, and said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Like, can you open the door a little and let us see the Father? And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak are not my own. But my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Jesus wanted to be crystal clear. There are many views of God, but only one true path to him. Now, Thomas processes everything Jesus has said to him, but it doesn't click. It doesn't click until the day he's in the room with these other friends, these other students, and his dead teacher shows up quite alive. And in that moment, it clicks, and he's like, Oh, you really are God. Humans can't do that. Humans can't do that. And in that moment, when it clicks for Thomas, he realizes there is a path to God, and his name is J-E-S-U-S. You don't have to sort through the rest of your life if I have enough good karma to advance or if I have too much bad karma and I go backwards. You don't have to sort through 300 million different deities there is a path to God, and his name is Jesus. And Thomas devoted the rest of his life to telling people who believed in 300 million gods that there is one way to God. See, Thomas had hope that life is not at all a cycle of birth and death and rebirth. Thomas believed that because his teacher died and then walked out of his grave, that he broke the power of death. And you don't have to go through the cycle of reincarnation for thousands of lifetimes. That because Jesus broke the power of death, he had the key to death to give to his followers. So that anyone who dies in Jesus is given eternal life, no cycle. 
no cycle. Pastor and author Adam Hamilton writes this about Hindus, and it just struck me this week. I want to share this with you. He says, learning from each other, and this is part of our desire when we teach about other faiths, not to create a straw man argument and pretend we know what they believe and just assume and, and look down on other faiths. This is to really genuinely get into the heart of a Hindu person, see what they're searching for, and see how we can connect. So he says this. He says, in faithful, committed Hindus I have met, I have seen a deep desire to know God and to do God's work and will. I've seen a deep sense of duty to love their neighbors as they love themselves. We share together a sense of the mystery and glory of God and the call to live a life of love. We are different, but we share important things in common, and we can learn from one another. It was Gandhi's study of Christianity that led to and reinforced the idea of nonviolent resistance. Gandhi was a lawyer trained under the British Empire. He saw how the Indian people were treated as second-class citizens by the British. They were colonized, as you know, under the British Empire. And he longed to do something about it. You know where Gandhi found his inspiration? The Sermon on the Mount. Don't love only those who love you back, Jesus had said. Love your enemies. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. On Gandhi's office wall, there was only one image of a religious figure. It wasn't Krishna or the Buddha. It was an image of Jesus. He turned to Jesus' teaching to understand what non-injury might look like as an agent of change. And he understood that non-violence could be an incredible, powerful force. People would sometimes ask Gandhi, you talk about Jesus all the time. Are you a Christian? And Gandhi explained he didn't believe all the same things that Christians believe, but he considered himself a follower of Jesus because Jesus helped him see how living a life of non-injury and sacrificial love could actually change the world. In the United States, Gandhi's example of living the nonviolent teachings of Jesus inspired a young Baptist preacher named Martin Luther King Jr., who saw in Gandhi's leadership a picture of soul force. King, the Baptist pastor, learned the power of nonviolent love from the Hindu Gandhi, who himself had learned it from Jesus. King became a better Christian by studying Gandhi, and Gandhi became a better Hindu by studying Jesus. Maybe the same could be true of us as we listen to and love our Hindu neighbors. My hope is we will be the kind of people who understand our faith well enough to have a real dialogue with those of other faiths, and that we will not feel threatened by their faith, but will listen with kindness, compassion, and empathy. Along the way, we may find that we have become better Christians. Here's kind of the theme verse for our entire series. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That means leader. If you follow the way of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you say that Jesus Christ is not one of the ways. He is your way. He's not one of your leaders. He's your only leader. What do the Ten Commandments say? The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other God. Christ is Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. You know my hope? I have a God, and I don't have to feed him. But do this with gentleness and respect. And I think that's the hard part for us. 
we are often so convinced that we know the truth. And if you know Jesus, you do. But sharing this with others who don't believe, we are called to do that with gentleness and respect. And do you know who did this well? That pessimistic, doubting student named Thomas. Because historians record for us what happened next. He went to India and devoted the rest of his life to sharing with Hindus about the way, the truth, and the life. He is considered to be the patron saint of India, the first Christian missionary to the Hindu people. And tragically, his life was cut short by some furious Hindu priests who murdered him. But Thomas gave up his life because he cared so much about people who hadn't yet met his Jesus. He knew what they were looking for. They were looking for the path to the divine. He knew the way. He had met the way. And that way had changed his life. My friends, 2,000 years later, Jesus is still meeting people, still turning people from skeptics to students and from students to believers. And if you have been changed by Jesus, you are on this process of growing to becoming a lot like Tom, developing a courage that you don't have innately. Tom didn't. He was known as Doubting Thomas. And yet he ended up giving up his life for those who doubted more than him. He was known as a pessimist, and yet he became known as someone who brought hope to a land filled with 300 million gods and no hope of nirvana or heaven. God used Thomas. And I believe God is still in the process of using pessimistic, doubting people who just want to meet Jesus and who are ready for their lives to be changed by him. Hey, this morning, there are two more Jesus followers who are going to go public with their faith in baptism this morning. Yeah. And Craig and Julie are about to go under the waters of baptism. And when they do that, here's what they're telling us that they have met Jesus and that Jesus has transformed their lives. You know the kind of courage it takes to go for a public swim in front of all of you? It takes a ton of, ton of courage. You know who gave them that courage? Jesus Christ. And that's why the very first step of faith for anyone that wants to follow Jesus is a public act. It is getting in water, going underwater. And that tells the people around you, you are following the way the truth, and the life. You are, right? Christianity is the very unique world religion compared to all other world religions because all other world religions teach paths to God. They all teach a list of do's and don'ts, and Christianity is the only faith that doesn't have a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, the list says, done, signed by Jesus. He's done the work we couldn't do. He's created the path to God we couldn't create. He made the bridge to heaven that we couldn't make. And he invites anyone who will believe in him, come. He said to Thomas, touch me. And Thomas is like, I believe now. I believe that you are the Christ, the son, the living God. He said he called him my Lord and my God. My friend, I have a God and I don't have to feed him. He feeds me. And he gives me words of life. And you need to know there are far more Hindus on the planet today than there were at the time of Tom. Who's going to go tell him? Who's going to go tell him? 
the good news. Maybe some here will. Maybe some at hearing me at another campus, maybe you will commit your life to going and sharing with Hindus that there is a way. There is the way, the truth and the life. Maybe it's just by sharing that way with an unbelieving friend or neighbor or coworker or family member. Maybe it's by a, a, a Hindu person that you come across and you have hope and you can share the reason for your hope. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them how he's changed your life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I want to pray for each and every person here this morning. Father, you have done an amazing thing by sending us Jesus. Thank you for sending us the path to you. And God, I pray for those who are maybe listening to me today and they haven't yet found you, they haven't yet met you, they haven't yet touched and tasted you to see that you are good and you are the only way to God. And Lord, I pray that maybe today would be their day of belief that you would give them the faith to believe that you're the only way. And as they surrender their life to you, as they tell you that they believe, God, you've already promised that you'll forgive them, you'll adopt them into your family, and they will be on the path to God. Lord, I pray that today there will be, there will be that one person who surrenders their life to you, who joins the family of God. God, I pray for the rest of us that do believe and yet we struggle with doubt, we struggle with pessimism, we struggle with courage. Infuse us with what you infused Thomas. Infuse us with hope and passion and courage to give our lives in, give our lives for those who don't yet know. God, all around us are people struggling in darkness, grasping for a path. May we be light bearers who shine the light towards you. And may we have the thrill of taking many other people with us to you and ultimately one day to heaven. God, that is our prayer. Thank you for Craig and Julie and their faith this morning going public with baptism. We cannot wait to celebrate with them and their courageous faith in a living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, I'm Craig Hall. I was always very confused. He just kind of went through the motions. Um, 